0: Hollywood is rated LGBT radio starring your host Rob Watson Greetings 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 welcome to this installment of rated LGBT radio and I am your host Rob Watson as always, we have a really wonderful show lined up for you uh, today. Our show today is, um, I, I think it's going to be kind of bittersweet because um, we're talking to an esteemed member of the clergy in Los Angeles, uh, the Reverend Canon Susan Russell. Um, Reverend Russell is, the, um, is an Episc- Episcopal priest. Um, She is uh, serving as the canon for engagement across difference for the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles, and she is a member of the All Saints Church in Pasadena. Um, Reverend Russell has a lengthy activist resume of things that she has done to heighten and uh, protect and fight for the LGBTQ community. Um, Today, we're going to talk to her about a specific subject as well, and that is her personal memories of the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who passed away um, this past week. Uh, Archbishop Tutu was a renowned world leader in um, religious circles, and probably one of the most positive in terms of the LGBTQ plus community, and standing up for who we are, our dignity, our spirituality, and and faith in general. Um, so we're going to talk to uh, Reverend Russell about um, him, and get her personal insights as she met him personally, and the effect that he had on her. Um, before we bring her on, as she's waiting um, patiently in the wings, I want to uh, bring on our, my wonderful co-host, the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, Brody Levesque. Brody, welcome.
1: Hey, Rob, and a very happy New Year's early uh, to uh, all of you around the globe, uh, including those of you who are currently celebrating New Year's Eve uh, in certain parts of the globe that are ahead of the United States. Um, It is ending an interesting year. 2021 has certainly been one for the record, Uh, probably not quite as grim as 2020, but still filled with, uh, you know, some really dark uh, and disconcerting events and some really, uplifting, uh, and and personally, I feel good events have happened, so it's kind of a mix. Um, I think that um, looking ahead, we're hoping that 2022 uh, quite obviously is better, but uh, as we end this year, unfortunately, we are ending it the same way we ended 2020, and that is with a resurgence of the coronavirus, Um, although I will note and should note that we are not experiencing the mortality rate that we experienced a year ago. The vaccines uh, apparently are doing their job. Hospitalizations are down, Uh, death and death count is down. But unfortunately, this current uh, brand or flavor of the virus uh, is rapid fire infection. We're getting early data now uh, from the World Health Organization, from the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, that this looks like it may be not quite as ugly as uh, the previous uh, variant, the Delta variant, although the medical jury is still out on that, but it does look like uh, we're going to be suffering not quite as much, at least in the regards to the body count, that we did a year ago um, during the course of the pandemic. Um, and on that note, uh, the Los Angeles Blade, in the next uh, day or so, will be publishing its year-end in review. Um, this morning, the Williams Institute uh, at the University of California School of Law published its LGBTQ data in review, which was a snapshot look at significant data and data analysis for the last year of 2021. I would invite you to go to losanglophoy.com, and you guys can read up on that. We also published yeah. a list of all of the LGBTQ people who have passed away and are now gone in 2021. So those are two significant stories currently uh, at the Los Angeles flight.
0: Yeah, Brody, going back to the um, COVID um, issue and the the change between last year and this year, um, the one thing Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful for is that people who are not vaccinated take the Omicron as a warning shot. to your point it may not be as lethal although the people who are not vaccinated are experiencing pretty bad effects from it um and the the point i would want to make with those people is this is not going to be the last variant and it's not the last one that is going to work its way in and the um people who are unvaccinated are hotbeds for these variants to keep emerging and spreading Um, The more people who are vaccinated, the less opportunity these variants have for catching ground. And the next one may not be like Omicron. It may be worse. It may be more lethal. And um, so we we have this opportunity, and I just hope people take it.
1: I do, too. I, uh, you know, in the conversations that I've had, uh, with the task force and with Dr. Anthony Fauci, who of course is the lead on this and President Biden's advisor. Uh, while the Omicron variant uh, is not having catastrophic effects on people who have either been double dosed or even dosed with a booster, uh, to those that are unvaccinated, uh, yeah, the, the almost, well, by all of the hospitalizations are unvaccinated people. And all the deaths are, except for like a minuscule amount, we're talking a 0. .000, are again unvaccinated people. And you know, Dr. Fauci also said to us uh, that you know we may be looking at an annual COVID shot now, uh, the same way we would be looking, and we do look at an annual uh, flu shot. So uh, it's here to stay, and the next variant may in fact be really pretty bad. Um so yeah, it's it's it I hope people pay attention. I, I, I do. It, it's yeah. uh but again you know, we're we're seeing a lot of coolness out there and uh we're seeing a lot of pushback and uh you know, it, it just people for whatever reason uh just uh, don't seem to get it. And uh, you know I the argument that I've always made and I will continue to make, Rob, is that you know, everybody had to get a vaccination for polio, measles, and a bunch of other things to enroll in school. They have to get the vaccinations, okay, improve vaccinations in some cases to get a you know a visa to travel overseas to a certain countries, They have to get it in order to be, you know, included and sworn in to the U.S. armed forces. Okay, and I just um, had a complete and utter loss as to the disconnect, and the only thing is it, it just does keep coming back to one thing and one thing only, and that is, you know, the Trump White House uh, and, and his, you know, for lack of a better term, flying monkeys, uh, especially in the, in the right-wing echo chamber, uh, that have politicized this thing. And it's really tragic. Right. And unfortunately, it's now cost upwards of 800,000 American lives.
0: Right. And uh, Brody, switching back to your second topic, though, um, give us a highlight of some of the people who are high, are are noted on on the list that's going to come out in the LA Blade.
1: Uh, well, the list is now up at the Blade. Uh, we lost uh, we lost uh you know one of our big allies this year, Florence Lichten. She passed away at age ninety
2: four.
1: Um, and Fishbacher, who was half of the Uh, Siegfried and Performing Act. Um, We have uh, James Levine, who was the Metropolitan Opera's uh, maestro. Um, We lost um, the first openly gay judge in New York State's highest court, the Court of Appeals, uh, Judge Paul Feynman. He passed away from uh, cancer. Um, We lost uh, someone that I knew personally and had a lot of respect for, Kay Tobin-Lain who, of course, was a gay activist and a photographer. She died uh, at 91. Uh, She was, of course, married to uh, Barbara Giddings. And these were both uh, early pioneers in what was then known as the homophile movement, uh, going all the way back to the early 1960s. And both Kay and Barbara uh, were contemporary to my dear friend, uh, Dr. Frank Camden, who, of course, was the leading pioneer in the movement. Um, we lost, uh, Sally, uh, Gerhardt, uh, who I knew personally, uh, she died in Ukiah. Sally was an unbelievable force of nature and a prominent, uh, activist. Um, we lost Ambassador James Hormel, the first openly gay ambassador, uh, who was, uh, nominated, uh, by President Bill Clinton and then later confirmed by the Senate, um, so we we, we lost uh, you know a, a good deal of course one of the more famous ones uh, was Stephen Tomham, the award-winning composer uh, of the probably the most um, one of the most notable composers of the 20th century I mean uh, you know well well known for his work um, so it, it's uh, and of course and I, I need to note someone that I read a lot of their work was an amazing writer, uh Belle Hooks uh, was a trailblazing feminist writer. Um, you know, she died uh, you know, at age sixty nine from end stage renal failure. And it was really, I think, a loss because <clears> I think <throat> that Bell still had some good writing left to do. So, you know, it it was a year and, and we marked in right. passage and we won and re those that we lost. Right. And
0: two two additional people that. Uh, I want to mention uh, is um, author Anne Rice, um, and uh, I wrote a tribute piece to her in the Los Angeles Blade, so you can look that up as well. Um, But she is an enormous uh, contributor to our culture, and she was very, very active um, as an LGBTQ parent of uh, author Christopher Rice, but also Almost considered herself an LGBTQ community member. Um, She related so much to 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 us and um, living living your truth. Um, And last but not least is um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, um, who we're going to talk about um, a little bit more right now. Um, So with that, I do want to uh, bring on our special guest, uh, Reverend Canon Susan Russell. Uh, Reverend Russell welcome to the show
2: thanks so much for having me Uh,
0: thank you thank you for joining us and uh, since we just uh, let's let's segue right into um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu what what was your interactions with him and uh, what was your what impression did he make on you especially as a clergy member
2: Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Um, You know, Archbishop Tutu was, again, as you've said, such a worldwide renowned figure for so many things, um, uh, particularly for his – Willingness to stand against apartheid in his own country, but also for his his deep commitment to truth and reconciliation and his desire to build bridges across difference. And, um, I mean, one of the quotes I've been sharing quite broadly uh, this week after his passing uh, is, if you want peace, don't talk to your friends, talk to your enemies. And I think um, to go back to some of your earlier conversation about you know where we are in this nation and where we are in terms of being polarized, the polemic, uh, the polarization of vaccinations, um, is part of our unwillingness and inability to talk across the divide, to talk with those with whom we disagree, and in order to build bridges across difference. Uh, Instead, we keep building walls. And personally, I think that's not um, accidental. I think that's part of an orchestrated strategy to divide us uh, in order to conquer us. And that's one of the gifts, I think, um, Archbishop Tutu, who liked to be referred to as the Arch. um, He had a very impish sense of humor and was a deeply (laughs) humble man um, with, again, an amazing sense of humor. And he had actually a T-shirt that just said, the Arch, he used to like to wear – I saw a picture recently of him wearing it. I wish I had it, but it was of him wearing it at Splash Mountain in Disneyland when he was here visiting one time. But um, I think that's one of the gifts he brought was uh, he was such a deeply faithful person, uh, such a profoundly, um, such a moral compass. Um, I've sort of referred to him as our you know, a North Star of our moral compass, uh, not just for his country or his church, but for all of us. But what he brought was the ability to transcend those differences. It wasn't just about justice for um, the blacks in South Africa against the uh, uh, abysmal apartheid system. It was justice for everyone. And uh, if, you know, for him, you know, God's love being available to all really meant all. Um, and uh, the story that I've, I've been telling, is, you know, my personal story was, uh, I, I actually got to meet him three different times in my in my life and journey. Um, the first was back in 1994 um, when he was at our, our Episcopal Church's General Convention, which is thousands of people at a massive convention hall. Right. And even then, as a seminarian, you know, sitting against the, in the cheap seats back in the bleachers with 3,000 people. You could just feel the energy of this little tiny man way far up front. Uh, and I left that feeling like, wow, I got to be in the same room with Desmond Tutu. You know, I can kind of, you know, die and go to heaven now. Um, and then years later, well, working you here didn't. in Pasadena. <laughs> thank God uh, you working didn't. Working here at <laughs> you yeah. Church. Go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say, thank Work. God you didn't, because you were going to actually get even closer to him.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, and then being a, the privilege of working here at All Saints Church in Pasadena, where I've been for 21 years, um, uh, All Saints was very much a partner with uh, many Anglican churches in South Africa uh, trying to overcome apartheid and participating in the divestment um, process, which was very controversially at the time. Um, trying to get countries to stop investing in South Africa in order to force um, uh, the end of apartheid. And so Bishop Tutu was a very good friend of this congregation, um, and he preached here in 2005, which was right in the middle of. Um, some of your listeners may know that we elected a, a openly gay bishop in 2003. Uh, Gene Robinson was elected bishop of yep. New Hampshire and um you know it was it was a very big deal he was honestly the truth the backstory story is he was not the first gay bishop in the episcopal church um he was just the first one to be honest about it um uh, we said many right. times the h word was not homosexuality but honesty um and so 2005 was right in the vortex of that what, anglican inclusion wars when really some of the rest of the Anglican Communion was literally trying to vote the American Episcopal Church off the Anglican island. It was like Survivor, the Episcopal Church version. And for Desmond yeah, Tutu to, to stand in our pulpit and when he gave the list, which preachers are fond of doing, you know, waxing eloquent about who's you know who who is not outside God's love, and we're used to hearing male and female, black and white, um, but we we were not used to hearing gay and lesbian. And then when he paused right. and said, "And so-called straight," the whole church just erupted in laughter and applause, um, because we hadn't heard that before, um, not from right. in, from our own clergy, because you know we're All Saints Pasadena, but not from a bishop, and not from the Archbishop of um, South Africa, not from Desmond Tutu. And it really was literally kind of wind beneath our wings, I think, for the challenges of many of the years ahead. Uh, and then my third uh, personal experience with uh, Archbishop Tutu was about uh, seven years, six years later, 2011, when he came back. Um, and we were, I was greeting him on the lawn uh, before we began the service. And uh, he took my hand and said something lovely about the work that we'd been doing here around LGBTQ um, equity uh, and then said he wanted me to know that be, out of gratitude for how we had stood with him and them on, um, uh, to dismantle apartheid, he wanted to assure me that he would stand with us to dismantle homophobia and oh, again amazing. that was one of those really quite wonderful moments and he really meant it and he took a lot of flack for it and and the work is still you know the work is still happening you're you, know, you all, all you have to do is google uh gay in Africa and know that it is uh worse than ever um the polarization oh, yeah. the demonization the marginalization of LGBTQ people in Africa is getting worse rather than better Again, I think uh, the, the sad truth is part of that is it is part of an organized agenda of the uh, radical uh, religious right to continue to polarize and divide us, absolutely antithetical to everything Desmond Tutu stood for which was all about Mm -hmm. bridging differences, calling people together. On the other side of that coin are some of the people uh, your previous guest mentioned. I won't mention them by name, but we all know who they are. Their goal is to divide us and to keep us fighting amongst ourselves uh, in order to keep us from organizing to uh, overcome and defeat our common oppression. And if we learn anything from Archbishop Tutu in our movement, in the LGBTQ community, it's that the more we can come together and bridge whatever differences we have generationally around uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, as we continue to live into a a greater understanding of our non-binary community and the challenges that brings all of us like every day. And I'm speaking as a boomer who still struggles to get pronouns right and uh, you know, live into new understandings of, uh, you know, a broader diversity than I could have ever imagined um, when I was coming out 30 years ago. So anyway, right. that's my sort of brain dump of my own experience with him and i um, <laughs> grateful to have the opportunity to share some of those stories with your listeners.
0: Well, no, we appreciate that very much. And I um, love giving added depth to his story from where people, you know, there's so much about him out um, in the public right now, and um, having that perspective is is really intense and wonderful. Um, You yourself are no slouch in terms of being a a champion uh, for the LGBTQ community, Um, both your fight for, um, you know, uh, the repeal of DOMA, your fight against uh, Prop 8, Um, you know, it's – everything that you've done. I, I want to take you, though, to a broader question about Christianity in the United States. And um, as you mentioned, the religious right, in fact, and many of the religious right in the United States are part of the ones backing the the horrible things that are happening in Africa. They, they can't exactly. even just keep it at home. Um, but the Episcopal Church has always been – somewhat of a beacon of safety um, in the spiritual landscape here, um, standing apart, one of the first to ordain female ministers and female clergy. Um, But the narrative of the United States, as far as Christianity goes, seems to be, have been hijacked by people who, in my opinion, and with my own sense of spirituality, are really the Antichrist. It's like they pretty much stand for every single thing that Christ stood against. Um, how, how can the, the other part of Christianity, the part that you come from, take over that narrative or refute it in a way that Christianity does not have as black a name as it does now?
2: That's such a great question, and I love you bringing up the Antichrist because I almost said that a minute ago, and I thought, no, that's too churchy for secular radio. So, thanks for um, for for bringing that in. No, this has been my favorite soapbox for decades, and you know, my parish is tired of hearing me say it. But you know, every time we have an opportunity, it's part of the reason I you know want to come on shows like yours is to offer an alternative narrative that. Um, you know, the good news of my faith is that the good news of God was that God loved us enough to become one of us in order to show us how to love one another. It's really that simple. And yet it, it, that narrative has been hijacked. It has been um, co-opted by the patriarchy and used as a, you know, a weapon of mass discrimination against not just women for centuries, but queer people, uh, subsumed into white supremacy and used as a um, tool for racism as well. I mean, you can take almost any text in the Bible and twist it into almost anything you want it to be. And um, I tell my people all the time, you know, we're surrounded by people who are starving for the good news we have to offer, but it doesn't even occur to them to try it. They think they know enough about being a Christian not to want to be one because who wants to hang out with those people? And I think it's absolutely our responsibility to offer a different way, to provide an alternative narrative, and to not let the good news of our faith and our go- the gospel be hijacked to the, by those who want to continue to use it, uh, again, as a weapon against others. And we 're seeing that intersectionality emerge. I mean, I think of people like William Barber and the people 's Campaign are willing to actually preach gospel that transcends any of the specific um, um, marginalization oppressions we're talking about. Um, we, we need to end the oppression Olympics where well we you know we can only do so much if we fight this we can't fight that that we're all in this together and I, I feel like in the decades I've been in this work, I've seen movement along that way. I mean, in the early Prop 8 days, it was almost impossible to get um, um, the kind of bridges we hoped to with many communities of color who were listening to their pastors and hunkering down and, no, uh, they weren't really willing to go there. And that's changed dramatically. I mean, so many of the young queer leaders we see uh, raising them now are young and people of color and um, We've seen tremendous progress in that way. So overall, I'm hopeful, um, but in the moment, we're, we're definitely in a moment of challenge. And, um, of course, right. the whole uh, challenge with COVID has not helped anyone with anything, and it's, um, all it does is create more fear, and that fear is continuing to be polarized uh, or, or mobilized in order to polarize and divide us, I think.
0: Right, and uh, speaking of division, because when I think of the Episcopal Church, I don't think of division. Although I think you brought up one that that is significant and um, and, and noteworthy, is that there was a division um, when uh, Bishop Bishop Robinson was was uh, elevated to that level, and he, by the way, has been a guest on our show. So it's uh, um, we've had a pleasure of having conversation with him um, mm-hmm. as well. What, what is the state in the church the right now in terms of that division? Has that resolved, or is that still ongoing?
2: You know, it, it's a both-and. And, and I, I appreciate you bringing up the, uh, the ordination of women issue, which happened uh, for us in the 70s it started, but it really wasn't until the late 90s that you would really consider it resolved, wherein it was uh, normative across the whole church. Um, and I think we're seeing the same thing with LGBTQ inclusion. Uh, Jean was elected, in elected and consecrated in 2003. Um, up until 2009, we had a sort of a, a, a hiatus um, resolution that said we shouldn't elect any more gay or lesbian bishops because it was going to upset the rest of the communion. Uh, those of us who are activists in the church had to work long and hard to overcome that. Um, and rescind it i 'm um, proud that here in the Diocese of Los Angeles we elected the second openly LGBTQ uh, bishop, Mary glasspool who was elected in two thousand and nine and now serves in new York and to where we are now, um, we have five uh, openly gay bishops, um, you know out of over a hundred, so it 's not uh, certainly a plurality yet, but we 've come a long way from when Jean was first elected and um, you know, there was so much drama. And, I mean, usually uh, I remember being at the convention where he was elected and I was running um, – actually, I was running his some of his um, communication team. And, you know, I was doing live stand-ups with Susan Candiotti on CNN News. I mean, usually – CNN doesn't send a news van to cover a church convention. So um, we really did feel like it wasn't, and I'm looking actually in my office right now, I'm looking at a, um, a cover of the Advocate magazine when Gene was a man of the year for the Advocate. So what we felt like at that point was it was an evangelism opportunity for the Episcopal Church to say uh, if you want to be part of a church um... where everyone is included we're still working on it but we're working on it and we're making progress Mm -hmm. and my congregation in pasadena grew as a result and it wasn't just queer people coming it was it was young families coming saying you know we we want to raise our children I, i remember one woman on the lawn telling me it's such a relief to find a church where i don't have to spend all week on teaching my daughter what she learned in sunday school on sunday I was like, "Whoa, that's a that's a lot in that sentence." Um, but if you, if you're looking for a place where the values are about love and justice and compassion, not you know hatred, judgment, and condemnation, then you know the Episcopal Church is a place that welcomes you, and that's the message we hope we can get out more broadly. And uh,
0: Reverend Russell, take us back to your your path. Um, what What happened in your life that you felt the calling to um, join the clergy, and at what point did kind of the LGBT activism integrate for you with your religious calling and your, your, your political calling, for lack of a better term?
2: Yeah, that's a, boy, that, that's a, it's a long story. I'll try and give you the Cliff Notes version. Um, yeah, I was raised in the Episcopal Church, and back in a time when we didn't have women clergy, so it never occurred to me I would grow up and be a priest. In fact, years later, when someone asked my mother if she was surprised when I came out, she said, no, I was a lot less surprised that she turned out to be a lesbian than I was that she turned out to be a priest. So uh, there, there was that. Um, but I actually I was headed to law school, and um, and I got derailed. I got married. I uh, had two children. Um, you know, was a, did junior league volunteering in Santa Barbara. It was a, um, a whole different life. Um, And gradually, I felt uh, a pull and ended up in seminary. uh, And it wasn't until after I was ordained that I came out. So anyway, it's a long story. But for me, coming out to myself was – it wasn't about a relationship. It wasn't about – it was about fully – coming to fully understand who I actually was and being able to bring myself fully to my ministry. Um, so the story that I tell, and I've told it many times, is I had the great aha moment um, sitting in the National Cathedral on the 4th of July uh, listening to the organ music. And I, I literally heard, because I've been doing a lot of reflecting and, and stewing and, and wondering, and I heard literally a voice in my head that said, this is how I made you go back and be the priest I called you to be. So I came back mm-hmm. to L.A. I met with my bishop. Um, He only asked me two questions, how can I help and how are your boys? Uh, And he helped me a lot, and my boys were fine. Um, So I tell that story because it's sort of the bedrock that called me into activism. When I came out, it it was just information. Um, It was an aha moment. It was the I should have had a V8 moment. It was the moment that made everything make sense, including why my marriage wasn't had never really worked, and my husband and I, my then husband and I, worked very hard to reconfigure our family on the other side of of the marriage, and I, you know, it wasn't perfect, but I think we did a good job, Um, and what I realized is the platform of privilege I had to uh, become more fully the person I was called to be, uh, but also to continue to grow and to change um, meant that... I owed something back because I know I want my story not to be unusual. Most people don't have that experience or didn't of coming out and going to their bishop. I mean, that doesn't, the story doesn't always end the way mine did. And right. um, again, to sort of it sort of tie it back to Desmond Tutu, I've said many times, if, you know, if we just settled for ourselves being included would be like if we and okay, we're we're good now. We're we're included. You know, we're okay. <laughs> we're ours. safe. Let's do. Yeah, yeah we got yeah. ours. Let's do brunch. Um, right. That would as if we'd settled and said, okay, we've we've managed to um, get rid of segregation. So uh, forget about apartheid. You know that if we're if we're not willing to. Um, also lobby for those for, who are still being uh, uh, in, uh, dramatically oppressed and standing in solidarity with those um, that Mandela might still be in prison, that we cannot just settle, that again, nobody's free until everyone's free. And to go back to you know, Desmond's sermon that he preached in our parish, until all are gathered into God's loving embrace, none of us are truly home. And that's, that's the theological piece of the story but until liberty and justice for all means all it doesn't it's not it does not equal protection um, and right. we're, we're in a in a place right now where those very values are trying to be dismantled and distorted and i think it takes each and every one of us to dig deep and figure out how can we be agents of change uh, and um, in some ways, looking to the moral compass of those like Desmond Tutu, whose words will continue to inspire us, whose life will continue to inspire us, and uh, that you know, one of the ways we act out our faith, whatever it is, whether it's. Uh, um, a faith in a being or greater than ourselves, or a faith in human nature, or just faith in love and justice that um, we act that out by living it out in the world, and that's the call to all of us right now yeah, uh,
0: that's excellent and when when you kind of meditate on that call um what what are you hearing as the next steps what what and I'm not talking about your intellect but from a spiritual connection, what, what are you feeling is the next wave that those of us who are spiritual need to be part of um, to have an effect?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I really do think it takes us out of our comfort zone. It takes us to really looking how can we, even with those we most desperately disagree with, how can we continue to uh, listen to them and respect the dignity of their humanity, um, which is and that was again back to Desmond that was a big part of his work was being willing and able to sit down with those who had been part of you know orchestrating the apartheid system in South Africa but yet refused to allow them to uh, take away his ability to find humanity in them. And it became his superpower. Um, and, you know, I don't want to do it. I don't want to sit down and talk to some guy who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. You know, I'm, I'm anti-incarceration, and I want them all in jail. I mean, you know, that's, that's my reality. So, so I think spiritually what it is is to continue to strive to not only respect the dignity of every human being, but to influence um, whatever policies and processes we can to bring people together as opposed to participating in the uh, ongoing effort to divide us. Again, walls are easier to build than bridges. And um, finding ways and places to do that, whether it's across politics, whether it's across you know, gender or identity or uh, interfaith, um, i think if if we can mobilize and organize ourselves across our differences, we really do outnumber those who are trying to polarize us and so um, I think that's that's the, the, the that 's the immediate work is um, right uh, building those coalitions uh continuing to be uh, committed to uh, engagement across difference at the risk of using my day job um description uh in order to uh uh build the kind of not only nation but world um i mean we haven't even got into the existential threat, threat of the melting ice caps and the um climate problems you know it's uh, um right it's, it's a challenging time. I mean, it's, I've, I've got two, you know, two little grandbabies and another one on the way, and I look at them and I think, what kind of world are they going to grow up in? Um, it's it's you know, not, not an easy time, but uh, you know, we look at what uh, Desmond Tutu put up with and survived and helped change and transform in South Africa. We're not the first generation to face challenges. Uh, And I think um, finding ways to learn from those who've gone before us, but also um, continue to, uh, uh, you know, learn and grow together is is the direction we're being called.
0: Uh, No, thank you for that. One of the things that we talk about on the show a lot is, and this is from a political standpoint, is a lot of the wave in politics right now and the fight for, quote, unquote, Religious freedom and how that's being used and we have a lot of people on who talk from a legal standpoint in terms of you know the the where that infringes and where the lines are and, and those sort of things. Um, I always sit back in those discussions with a little bit of anger because beyond the legal parameters of it I almost feel offended because those who are promoting, quote-unquote, religious freedom are actually promoting something that isn't, from my perspective, religiously based in Christianity. In other words, they're bastardizing Christian concepts, wanting the freedom to do so, and trying to impose those on others. So without having poisoned my question too much, um, what is your take on – religious freedom um, and that that trend and argument that is taking over the courts and um, you know part of the political movements
2: oh absolutely 100% i mean i've written quite a bit about it i used to blog for Huffington Post and i know there's a piece out, out there that's you know what what religious freedom is and isn't um, you know we we're guaranteed the the constitution guarantees us the opportunity to exercise religion it doesn't give us the doesn't guarantee us the right to impose religion. And when we have those who are so convinced that they have absolute possession of the sole truth and they're going to therefore impose their religious beliefs on others, you're absolutely right. It's a a bastardization of the actual tenets of whatever faith you're trying to do. I mean, any of the great world religions, um, Islam, um, Judaism, Christianity – Um, All of us, the the core value is love your neighbor as yourself, and you don't love your neighbor as yourself by beating them up with your religion. Um, The other piece for me is is there's an ontological difference between feeling discriminated against because you're disagreed with, which frankly sucks, who likes to be disagreed with, and being discriminated against because of who you are. Right. So uh, another way to frame that, we have those who are trying to make themselves victims because they're disagreed with. Uh, and it, it just, it's not an argument that holds water. We are a pluralistic nation with multiple ways of apprehending truth around religion and faith. And if, none, if, if, any, of, if, if any of us are not free to exercise our faith, then none of us are. And when we find those uh, confusing, uh, particularly in, in legislation and, um, and in, our, in our political process, I mean, they've been – the oath they take is to protect the Constitution, not to project their understanding of Scripture. Uh, so the test has got to be what does the Constitution say, not just what do you think the Bible says. Because again, you know any you put five people in the room with a Bible, you come up with seven opinions on what any given any given <laughs> verse means, right. and right. at the end of the day, none of that matters. Our founding fathers knew that i mean that that 's part of the genius of you know our American system, which is far from perfect but um, that 's one of the geniuses was to separate church and state, which had you know literally never been done before i mean We're barely out of the divine right of kings um, phase, and yet we were willing to have this new way of understanding a democracy where all the people would be um, free to exercise religion, not impose it. And that's what I continue to see is this small percentage of people for whom uh, they've conflated their own privilege and their own understanding of um, of faith and of the Bible, and they want to you know turn it into a blunt instrument to beat up the rest of us and uh, what we need are more people of faith uh, across the um, differences speaking out and offering alternative narratives to that um, and again, that's um, part of the reason why I'm always so grateful um, to be invited into these kind of conversations uh, in the public arena yeah. well we're we're grateful to have you enter into them. Um, and I, also,
0: I'm, I'm really in awe of your different advocacies on specific um, issues that you've taken up the the mantle for um, through the years. From like I mentioned before, um, DOMA and getting the resolution uh, to repeal it, uh, you know, in front of the the church and adopted by the the general convention. Um, what one of the things one of the groups right now that isn't particularly in pain because they are really the focus of a lot of the attack is the transgender community um what what spiritually and from the church perspective um do you have as outreach to that particular group
2: what a, yeah great question and super important um. And we're all we you know, we've been on a journey on that, all of us, I think. Um you coming to understand more and more about sexuality and gender identity as a continuum. Um I remember back in two thousand six when we were again fighting the worst of the inclusion wars in the in the Episcopal Church and you know, we would talk about LGBT LGBT. We weren't adding the Q at that point. Um, but there were those within the community like, oh well, don't talk about the T because we, you know, it's just going to confuse people and it's right. too much. And and um, at that point, I actually worked with um, a team in the Episcopal Church. We produced a short documentary called uh, "Voices of Witness: Out of the Box," and it was uh, transgender Episcopalians telling their stories of coming out, um, coming clear about their gender identity and what it meant to them to transition. Um, and out of their faith, and we are able to produce that and then distribute it to all of the bishops and all of the delegates to our um, or deputies to our general convention in order to ha- get those stories out and have people actually hear them. Um, and continuing to work, there's a group in the Episcopal Church called Trans Episcopal, uh, and um, I work with them. I'm a member of our, um, our National Episcopal uh, LGBTQ Caucus, we're coming up. We have another general convention next summer, uh, hopefully in Baltimore. We'll see if it actually happens given COVID, but um, that's the plan. And continuing to uh, call the church to do the work it needs to do, to listen to the voices of transgender and non-binary people. To, um, uh, you know, we still have some people who are fighting over male and female pronouns for God when you know, the rest of the world is moving on to they, them, Um, You know, we need to to have all of those conversations at the table uh, in order to fully represent the diversity of God's, you know, beautiful uh, humanity, our human family. Um, Again, if any of us are excluded, then none of us are fully present, and that, I think, is a big part of the work of the next chapter, uh, is uh, for the church to become not just... um, uh, I don't want to say, not just officially inclusive, but um, broadly, uh, the broad equity for everyone.
0: Yeah, I I know for me personally, the concept of a father-mother God was always much more affirming than one gender or the other. I mean, it just, it it has always made much Uh more deep, deep sense to me. Um, I do want to give Brody an opportunity to jump in here. I I tend to be a little bit of a pig on this. So, Brody, did you have any questions or
1: comments? (laughs) Um, You know, looking at what you had just said, uh, Reverend Russell, in regards to the political processes, um, Rob and I have had some excellent guests on, including a dear friend of mine, uh, Kathy Baldick, who is a researcher and a writer. Uh, She runs a Reno, uh, Nevada-based group called Canyon Walker Connections. And she's also uh, good friends with uh, Yvette Schneider, uh, who was the focus of a recent Netflix film, Pray Away, uh, in regards to the ex-gay movement. And because of that, I wanted to direct a couple of questions at you. Uh, Bishop Jean and I have had this conversation, so I thought I would quickly have it with you. Let's talk specifically about the ex-gay uh, movement because uh, the transgender community very much factors into that. These people are weaponizing that you're made in God's image and that there are only two genders, and therefore it's an impossibility for you to be trans because it's against God's world, a word. Um, and as a direct result, i kind of like some input uh, from you on that regard.
2: Yeah, I think um, it's a great. Great point, and a great question, and again, I think that's what that's about. That, that's what I mean when I talk about weaponizing scripture. Um, you know, there's the old saying; it's attributed sometimes to Madeline Lengel of um, uh, *Wrinkle in Time* fame uh, that Episcopalians take the Bible too seriously to take it literally. Um, and so that's what I was raised. Uh, it never occurred to me that the Bible was actually the literal words of God. Um, we look at it as the living Word of God. But to, as finite human beings, to imagine that we can uh, control or understand the diversity of God's creation, as we find more and different things, um, you know, that's how science works. Uh, we find new and different. Th- we know more and new and different things about human beings today than we could have imagined when I was born sixty some years ago. Um, you know, if hundred years from now, if we haven't killed the planet and there's anybody left to look back. I imagine them thinking, oh, my God, can you imagine they actually thought there were only two genders? I mean, like, really, how lame is that? Um, much like we look back at, um, oh, let's just pick Galileo. You know, can you imagine they they made him a heretic for thinking that the um, – for being willing to challenge the fact that the uh, the earth, sun didn't revolve around the earth? Uh the whole point of science is as we understand new and different things, we adjust how we understand not that God is working in the world, but how God is working in the world. And to get stuck with that rigidity um, is, I think, antithetical to how um, God's spirit works in us in the world. And, again, to go back to my, my patriarchy as soapbox, it's what you use to preserve power. Um, if the old narrative gives you power, you hold on to it no matter what. And if the narrative is that God is up there and we're down here, and God is male and women are there to be subject, you know, we're just a hop, skip, and a jump from *The Handmaid's Tale*, and uh, nobody wants to go there.
1: I agree. I think that it's, you know, it's also problematic. Uh, you know, at least according to um, the political types that I talk to, um, because it's it's this mixing and mashing uh, that has become a problem. Uh, several uh, people that I've spoken to, some of whom uh, are Republican um, and, and are more conservative, uh, have expressed that viewpoint as well, which reminds me, you know, Senator Goldwater's... Uh, favorite caution and warning to, you know, the Republican Party years and years ago uh, about, you know, getting too much religion um, into, you know, party politics and, you know, what would happen, um, you know, if the Christian right basically took over the party. Um,
2: You know, the senator
1: said, and, and I will quote the senator, um, that, um, mark my word, if and when these preachers get control of the Republican Party, and they're sure trying to do so, it's going to be a terrible damn problem. Frankly, these people frighten me. Politics and governing demand compromise. But these Christians believe that they are acting in the name of God, so they can't and won't compromise. I know I've tried to deal with them. And that quote from Senator Goldwater um We're talking 50 years ago, probably a little bit Mm -hmm. more. And, and it, you know, and now more than ever, uh, I think that it holds true and it holds water. And we also saw it because many of the people that were involved in the events of January the 6th, uh, a year ago, uh, were waving, you know, little, I think they call them the Christian flag. It's the blue field with the red cross with the white. And we saw those banners out there along with the, Trump flags and the Trump-Pence flags, um, listening to you, it, it, it kind of gives me hope and heart, but at the same time as a political reporter, I'm a little jaded, and I keep coming back to Senator Goldwater's, you know, admonishment, you know, if they get control. So it's, it's really a two-way street. Um, but that said, um, I, I did want to extend my appreciation to you for everything that you do for the movement. Uh, and for uh, LGBTQ uh, people, especially uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, well, thank So you. thank you for that. Rob? Yeah, um,
0: I want to echo the thank you. I, I, I think what you're doing is, is vitally important. Um, I hope your voice gets louder and louder. Um, it's needed, it is, as I've alluded to in the show. Um, oh. We need to take over the Christian narrative um, it has been held by people who don't deserve to hold it uh, too long in the country and probably historically to be fair I mean it's not like like years ago um, you know that it, is, it has been in responsible voices then either but um, now now, I think there's a really incredible Christianity that is possible um, that that needs voice, and you certainly are are the mouthpiece. Um, for for that aspect, um, we are quickly running out of time here. Um, so let me let me just ask uh, you know along those lines. Um, you know the the one quote uh, from Archbishop Tutu was uh, Jesus said, or Jesus did not say I. If I be lifted up, uh, will draw some. Jesus said I. If I be lifted up, will draw all, 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 all. Um, you as as a a representative of that philosophy, what what is next in terms of drawing up all all all? If Jesus were back today, walking by your side, what would you do?
2: yeah that's a great question. Again, thank you for the time. Um, we rarely get this kind of extended time to have these kind of conversations, so um, super grateful. You know, I'll argue that Jesus is walking with us because you know my, my theology is that we all carry that, that grain of the divine in us, that you know those of us who understand ourselves to be Christians are part of the body of Christ doing that work in the world. And what our job is, is to constantly look for, you know, where are the last, the least, and the lost? Who's not at the table? Who needs to be at the table? Um, I think there's going to be a radical reordering of uh, Christianity in general and American Christianity in specific. Um, I, I, I suspect 100 years from now, our church will look very different than it does now. But I think it's all about we're, – we're moving from a transactional to a relational phase. And I think what people want aren't um, you know, just to come and get um, data or sermons or information. They want to be in relationship with other people who care about what they care about, and then they want to be able to be mobilized to make a difference in the world. And you know that can mean a million things um, from – you know, meeting the needs of those experiencing homelessness in our streets and in our city to, you know, dismantling um, white supremacy and patriarchy that continues to oppress anyone who's not, you know, a straight white dude with money, Um, present, you know, any present company notwithstanding who might be listening, Jesus loves you too. But, you know, it's time to step back (laughs) and let everybody else have a chance. Um, I think Excellent. that's really what it's all about. Um, it really is. I said at one point earlier on, it's sort of my own little mantra that the the point of the incarnation of Jesus coming to Earth was to show us he loved us enough to show us how to love one another, and we're still learning that lesson. But I think we learn it by just doing it, and um, and when we when we when we fall short, when we when we um, when we, when we blow it, we uh, step back up and try again. And I think ultimately Perfect. love will conquer all. I just don't think – it might not be pretty in the short term, but I'm, a, I'm yeah. an optimist enough and faithful enough to think at the end of the day uh, that will be the story. So thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to tell it. Well, thank, thank you so much, and that will be our last word
0: for today. We are out of time. Um, I do want to thank the Reverend Ken and Susan Russell, for her time, her thoughts, her spirituality, and her leadership, um, and, and, and her remnants of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who will obviously live on through people like Reverend Russell. I want to thank Brody for his work on the L.A. Blade. He is the editor-in-chief and puts out that paper every single week. Check that out, um, and you might even find my name on some of those bylines, um, um, and happy to be part of that. And we will be back again, can you believe it, next year, although it's only a week away. And we will have another great show, fantastic guests, have no idea who or what it is, but I can guarantee you that it will be well worth your listen. So uh, join us then. And until then, thank you so much from the Rated LGBT Radio team. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.